Diplomacy Live Podcast Welcome to the ninth episode of the Diplomacy Light Podcast. This episode is about a critically important organization, not just for Europe, but also worldwide, the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe. The OSC was created to prevent wars like the one we have in Europe presently. And who better to discuss its past, its present, and its possible futures than with Thomas. Thomas is presently the director of the Geneva Center for Security Policy, but importantly for this episode, he was the ambassador of his country, Switzerland, when it held the chairmanship in office in 2014, as well as the secretary general of the OSC from 2017 to 2020. This is our conversation. Thomas, uh, welcome to the Diplomacy Light podcast. It's really a pleasure to have you here. Uh, for our viewers, I would say that there are few people in the world who know better, uh, well, who know as much the Organization for Security Cooperation in Europe uh, as Thomas, and certainly I would say none uh, that know it better. So it's really a pleasure to have a conversation about multilateralism in general, to which we will come to the end, but really uh, to look at a key organization, uh, not just for uh, European security, but really an exemplary one uh, in, in the world. Thomas, if we can start with a just a more general uh, historical timeline of the different stages, perhaps, of the OSCE. It has started in a polarized time. It has started perhaps in a time um, of, of, of high uh, tensions, uh, really, uh, where we may be witnessing something akin to that today, but really at that time, there were people looking up in the skies if they could see uh, missiles uh, going uh, over. Then perhaps a period of detente uh, period, and, and this is the, the moment that was used perhaps to, to create the uh, OSCE. Um, from the perspective of one, uh, then perhaps a period of uh, uh, rollback, a unipolar moment. How has the OSCE responded to those historical moments? How agile has it been to adapt itself to these different um, uh, manifestations of the international system? Well, first of all, uh, Lyufjo, thank you so much for having me uh, in your talk. Um, I would argue that by and large, uh, the OEC has uh, responded in a quite an agile and, and flexible way to these uh, different changes of expectations of the uh, political environment. But uh, again, uh, by and large, I would argue uh, participating, participating states of the OEC have uh, uh, not fully used uh, its potential. And, and let me perhaps, you know, give you a couple of examples uh, of uh, uh, OEC's um, flexibility. Uh, you know, for instance, uh, uh, after the Balkans war, the, the Balkan wars, uh, I think the OEC uh, managed uh, uh, quite uh, skillfully uh, to contribute to um, institution building in terms of strengthening rule of law, democratic institutions, the respect for human rights, but also the capacities of states in the Western Balkans to respond to different security threats 
not least uh, uh, to preventing violent extremism. Uh, so I think that's clearly uh, evidence for flexibility. Another example that I witnessed personally, um, of course, very closely, was OECS crisis management in 2014 in the framework of the crisis in and around Ukraine. And I think 2014-15, the OEC did a successful job, um, not in resolving, unfortunately, the conflict in the Donbass, but at least in preventing an escalation of the conflict. Uh, so basically, in a way, in 2014, we managed to prevent uh, what then, uh, unfortunately, uh, could not be prevented anymore uh, last year in February. This comprehensive uh, approach to security is something that the uh, prides itself on, and rightfully so, uh, to look at the political, the military, the economic, the environmental, human rights, all of these aspects and how they contribute to security or, or, or insecurity. Even the principles uh, of the OSCE, the Decalogue, um, are really intended to govern states of behavior, not just between states, but also uh, of states towards uh, its citizens. But it's a compromise, isn't it? It's a compromise of how different states, East and West at that time, were looking into the OSC and what and, and how it could contribute to their security. How has this compromise uh, as well kind of uh, evolved over time? And, and has it, uh, could it be said perhaps that uh, even the current crises, some other crises are the result of unmet, unmet expectations of the time of that compromise? You're absolutely right. I think from the very beginning of uh, the CSE, that is basically with the Helsinki uh, Final Act, uh, um, the, the political uh, rationale uh, of uh, the CSE and then later the OEC was uh, a, a political compromise on different dimensions, uh, or initially uh, they were called baskets of uh, security, ranging from hard security uh, to uh, aspects in, in economic, in, in environmental aspects to what is called today the human dimension, uh, where we talk about uh, democratic institutions, rule of law, and uh, human rights. And I think uh, that was the, the strength of the CSE process, that there was uh, this political uh, compromise uh, that was underlying the entire CSE process. And I think also in the early days of the OEC, this compromise uh, still uh, held and 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 was crucial uh, for the relevance and the functioning of the OEC. Unfortunately, I would argue over the last 15, 20 years, uh, the OEC then lost uh, its relevance when it came to what is uh, called the first dimension, that is mainly hard security, political, military aspects of security. These uh, uh, aspects of security were more and more dealt uh, with uh, uh, in other organizations, and uh, the OEC lost uh, uh, its relevance in dealing with these issues. And, and this, I think, uh, did uh, indeed contribute uh, at least to an extent uh, to the situation 
uh, that we witnessed uh, in in uh, the most recent uh, years uh, a situation uh, of polarization uh, and a situation of opportunities missed uh, to uh, um, to manage uh, uh, raising uh, tensions among the key stakeholders of European security. If we can even be uh, more specific um, uh, in terms of, well, uh, let, let me let me say it outright. Um, uh, can it be said, both in describing the OAC, but also in a general sense, that perhaps the current crises, uh, uh, including the, the war in Ukraine, are really a failure to establish a European security architecture that includes Russia as an integral part? We uh, do not know for certain, uh, since we cannot rerun historical processes by changing one or two parameters. Um, but um, it, it's a fact that at the end of the Cold War, uh, some uh, did hope that the CSE would turn into the sole European security organization. And those that uh, held these hopes, uh, they were clearly uh, disappointed. And um, uh, while you know we have no certainty about how history would have developed differently, uh, I would think that uh, a stronger role given uh, to the OEC could have uh, prevented some of the polarization, uh, could have uh, helped us uh, um, uh, use some uh, of the opportunities uh, that we had in terms of uh, arms control, in terms of uh, managing uh, tensions. Uh, uh, so uh, indeed, uh, I would tend to believe that a stronger OEC could have uh, helped us prevent conflict in Europe. So as we approach right now, the, you, you mentioned the Helsinki Final Act. We are approaching the 50th anniversary in 2025 uh, of it. We seem to be back to the levels of distrust that perhaps directly preceded or succeeded this period of detente. Uh, both, uh, one can look at both the 60s and the 80s uh, uh, as an example uh, of it. Um, do you think it is possible to have enough trust uh, as things are... It, it, it's certainly dependent on how things develop perhaps even this year. But do you think it's possible to have enough real trust or will to compromise and to truly reaffirm uh, the principle of the Decalogue uh, uh, during the uh, Helsinki Final Act anniversary uh, in 2025? Look, clearly not under current circumstances. Right now, I think uh, deterrence is uh, dominating uh, European uh, security and for very understandable uh, reasons. And I think for the time being, we see no trace of detente. We see no trace of, you know, uh, a will to reintroduce some elements of cooperative security to uh, the uh, European security order. And I think this is not going to change as long as uh, the war is ongoing. Uh, I think it's simply unthinkable. It's also politically not realistic to think that, you know, one could uh, seriously reflect uh, on a uh, security order that would, uh, again, uh, go beyond uh, sheer deterrence. Um, 
I, I would argue, uh, of course, uh, think tankers, uh, institutions like mine, the Geneva Center for Security Policy, they uh, indeed should uh, uh, reflect uh, 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 even today uh, uh, about the future European security order, but I think politically it's uh, simply uh, not in the cards. Uh, this could change, of course, and, and, and this is why we should reflect now. This could change if there is a, a, an end of the war, if the uh, end of the war uh, is uh, uh, achieved through a, um, a, a settlement that is perceived to be fair by the key stakeholders. I think this could indeed then lay the basis for a process that uh, could take us back to uh, uh, you know, a security order that again would contain some elements uh, of uh, um, cooperative security. I think a Helsinki 2.0 is uh, not unthinkable um, if you know, there is a, an end of the war uh, that um, is considered to be uh, uh, fair by key stakeholders. But uh, currently, uh, it, this is politically not in the cards. So would the use of a nuclear weapons be a permanent game changer in, in this regard? Yeah, I, I, I think so. Uh, I, I think what uh, this is perhaps one of the uh, few uh, good news that uh, we have been uh, hearing over the last uh, couple of months is I think this uh, nuclear saber-rattling uh, saber has uh, clearly um, diminished uh, quite massively, I would say, uh, since uh, last October. Uh, this is uh, reassuring. I think this, you know, the overall understanding that uh, a nuclear war uh, cannot be won and therefore should not be fought. Uh, I think this is, uh, uh, this again seems to be the, 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 the dominating notion um, by uh, the sides. And, and I think that's, uh, that's good. And this idea that tactical nuclear weapons uh, could be engaged and uh, uh, escalation could be controlled. I think this is a very, very dangerous illusion. And uh, I'm, I'm, I'm quite pleased to note that this uh, seems to be um, uh, off the table, even though I would immediately add, you cannot uh, totally exclude uh, such a, an escalation scenario if, for instance, uh, uh, President Putin um, uh, faces uh, strategic defeat. Uh, but uh, clearly, I think uh, currently thinking is uh, that uh, tactical nuclear weapons are as dangerous as uh, strategic ones and thereby uh, uh, and therefore sh should not be engaged. The threshold should not be uh, passed. Um, you have a really a thorough insight into the OSCE, including a secretary general. Um, how has the role and mandate of the secretary general evolved over time? And has it evolved to uh, contribute to an OSCE that is, as your agenda, reform agenda, uh, says fit for purpose? 
it did uh, evolve clearly. Uh, I, I, I think at the outset, the Secretary General was perceived to be a pure administrator, a pure manager uh, of the Secretariat. Uh, and uh, so if you want, clearly a secretary and not a general. Um, and, and this has uh, changed over time. I, I, um, my sense was uh, during my uh, tenure as Secretary General that uh, a clear majority of participating states expect uh, a, a, an active Secretary General uh, uh, that also plays uh, an active role when it comes to the diplomatic and political uh, functions of the Secretary General. At the same time, uh, there has never been, I think, uh, a, a consensus by participating uh, states on, on this. Uh, there is a, uh, a relatively small group of countries, mainly uh, Western countries, uh, that uh, do believe that the Secretary General should mainly be uh, a manager uh, and that diplomatic political tasks should be left to the chair in office. Uh, um, but again, I think the, the, the mainstream in the OEC expects uh, uh, from the Secretary General uh, a very active uh, role. Now, uh, I, I would say uh, when we want to keep the OEC as an organization that is capable you know, of implementing uh, its uh, uh, tasks, uh, then, uh, of course, it's necessary to um, uh, reform the organization and uh, including um, its uh, organizational and, and managerial uh, uh, aspects. And, and this, I think, is only possible if you give the Secretary General the space to do so. Uh, uh, you know, there is, superficially speaking, an understanding among states that, uh, well, the Secretary General is the manager of the organization, and this is uncontested, but in reality, there is a lot of micromanagement. And uh, as I could see when I tried to implement the fit for purpose uh, agenda, I met a, a lot of uh, uh, resistance, uh, at least by some participating states, also when it came to more managerial issues, uh, human uh, uh, resource policies, uh, uh, the budget process, uh, 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 you name it. There was uh, also when it came to these more managerial and organizational uh, uh, roles of the organization of the second channel, there was uh, a certain resistance. I think when it comes to the diplomatic role, again, there is a, a, a mainstream expectation that uh, the SG should be uh, active, uh, an active, uh, 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 assume an active diplomatic role. I wouldn't, you know, uh, um, recommend that one tries to change formally the mandate of the SG, uh, but uh, I what 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 I would suggest is that uh, there is a clarification of the role of the SG at least with uh, a incoming uh, chair, with the chair in office, uh, ideally with 
the Troika. Uh, if there is a clear understanding of who does what, I think uh, this already takes you uh, uh, quite far. Uh, I, I can give you a very positive example. Uh, I think I had uh, during the Slovak uh, chairmanship in uh, 2019, I had a, a very close dialogue with the then Slovak Minister of Foreign Affairs, the chair in office, uh, Miroslav Lajčák. Uh, we met regularly to divide labor, uh, and, and I think that worked uh, very well. Um, and that was a, a, a very uh, efficient and effective joining, joining of forces. And perhaps uh, a, a last remark, what clearly would strengthen both uh, the the organization and uh, the, the role of the second general is by uh, giving uh, the, the organization better strategic planning uh, tools, strategic planning capacities. When you compare the OEC with other international organizations, uh, you have to uh, conclude that it is extremely poorly equipped uh, and particularly in an organization, you know, where you have annually changing uh, chairs uh, that all have a 12 months time horizon. It's very important that you have a, 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 a somewhere a capacity to plan uh, the medium term uh, to have a, a, a strategic uh, planning uh, capacity. I try to introduce that, but uh, I have to uh, admit self-critically, I did not manage to really consolidate uh, that capacity uh, in the Secretariat. You speak of um, a, a concept, an idea that is a part of uh, the OSC. You mentioned it in your Fit for Purpose, this idea of cooperative security. Um, it, it seems that even the idea of collective security, which is the basis perhaps of uh, the, the peace and the international system, the multilateral system since World War II, uh, is challenged uh, at times. It, it, these are difficult times, uh, to say the least. Um, does this idea of cooperative security have a chance in the next decade or two? Uh, obviously, it will depend a lot on, on how, as you say, uh, the war in Ukraine uh, progresses uh, and, and hopefully finishes. Uh, but with 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 that in mind, it would it be possible to for a coalition of really of willing small powers uh, committed to international rules based order, um, and then importantly bind the bigger powers in this rules based order, uh, uh, for them to refrain to abstain from from might is right kind of thinking. Would it be possible for these kinds of smaller powers to make the definitive push for this idea of cooperative security? Well, look, I, I would hope that at some point we uh, will again be uh, capable of reintroducing uh, some elements of cooperative security into uh, uh, the European security order, because the security order that is exclusively based on deterrence is extremely costly. Yeah. Uh, uh, leads uh, to an arms race, leads to crowding out government expenditures into areas like health, uh, education, uh, digitalization. Um, and, and I think um, 
instead of you know financing implementation of the SDGs, we are basically uh, fueling an arms race. Uh, you see exploding defense budgets. I think that's not what we want in the long term. In the short term, uh, as you rightly say, as long as the war is ongoing and uh, as long uh, as you have uh, major powers, uh, a Russian Federation that pursues uh, a revisionist, uh, um, an imperial foreign policy, uh, security policy agenda, uh, this is uh, uh, difficult uh, to imagine or impossible. Um, now, who could play? Uh, if you know, uh, at some point, uh, the key stakeholders of European security are again willing to uh, respect international law, to play along um, uh, agreed rules, um, who could you know be a, a driving force in re-establishing um, um, such a security order? Uh, I need. Uh, I think when you recall how. Uh, the Helsinki uh, process was was driven. The NNN, uh, the neutral and non-aligned uh, countries played played a key role. Uh, I don't think that you know you could kind of uh, uh, relaunch uh, uh, a similar alliance of NNN. I think we have different times today. But the idea that uh, a number of smaller powers that do have an interest. Uh, in um, a, a security order, you know, that uh, is uh, also uh, uh, a cooperative one, that such an alliance of smaller countries uh, would play an important role in driving such a process, in driving a Helsinki 2.0 process. I think that is uh, uh, quite a realistic uh, concept. And I would uh, actually hope that this is going to happen, that we at some point will see such a coalition uh, emerge. And, and, you know, why not build a coalition that is uh, composed of states that have over recent years, uh, a bit ready to invest uh, uh, in the OEC. And, and uh, you know, that would include states uh, that uh, have been chairing, are currently chairing the organization. I think they could potentially be part of such a, a coalition. Uh, as we as we move forward, um, something that has been, well, both um, uh, an aspect of Pride organization, the consensus principle. Uh, it has also been sometimes a stumbling block. Um, consensus is an important um, idea and aspect of multilateral uh, relations. Uh, it doesn't uh, mean unanimity, as we all know, but uh, unfortunately, um, it is sometimes abused for uh, it, it, in this regard. Um, as we move forward, and let's say we, we start with really a peace in Ukraine, we start with a, a, a Helsinki Final Act 2.0, um, how do we deal with uh, the challenges that the consensus principle uh, brings? I would argue that uh, the consensus principle is a bit like the comprehensive approach uh, to security. is really a, a, a constituent. Uh, uh, element of the OEC. So I wouldn't uh, 
recommend to uh, radically change uh, the, the consensus principle. However, what I would advocate is to uh, keep the consensus principle when it comes to uh, fundamental issues, to uh, issues, you know, of, for instance, agreeing uh, to a field mission, um, agreeing to, uh, um, I think even you know the budget of the organization, even though this has proven to be very difficult, uh, should at the end of the day uh, be uh, um, approved uh, by consensus. I wouldn't want to question that. However, there are uh, uh, lots of uh, things that need to be decided in consensus uh, that are uh, you know not of fundamental nature. I think, for instance. Uh, Take conference agendas. Conference agendas, uh, uh, they look every year uh, very similar, uh, uh, which is not a surprise, uh, but still they need to be um, uh, approved by a consensus decision. And this is always an invitation, in particular, for you know spoilers uh, to uh, oppose uh, 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 a, a decision on the agenda of, let's say, the human dimension implementation meeting uh, of the annual uh, security review conference by insisting on, you know, very, very specific uh, vested interests. And I think uh, these opportunities, uh, they should they should be uh, diminished, reduced, abolished. Um, and I think this would, uh, take us uh, a long way in, in strengthening uh, uh, the uh, also the uh, efficiency of the organization so not fundamentally uh, questioning uh, the uh, the consensus principle i mean imagine the special monitoring mission to ukraine without uh, uh, a consensus uh, um, decision it could simply not have operated and and so i think a con the consensus can also be a huge asset and and i think this is why i would argue it shouldn't be done away with uh, but uh, there are too many purely bureaucratic decisions that uh, uh, currently need to be taken by consensus and here i think there is uh, quite a margin of maneuver uh, to uh, yeah, to uh, to reform and to make the organization uh, more uh, uh, efficient and eventually also more effective. As we approach the near the the end uh, of our time, let's zoom out a little bit from the OSCE uh, with a perhaps bridge uh, to the to the United Nations to uh, the global uh, multilateral setting. Uh, as Secretary General, you've contributed to. Um, uh, agreements between the OSCE and the UN, specifically on uh, Chapter 8 of the UN Charter, an important, perhaps underutilized uh, uh, chapter uh, of the Charter. If I may share with a friend of mine, we were once uh, jokingly, half-jokingly, kind of brainstorming of what a possible reform of the Security Council uh, might look like because it's always looking at different states, but perhaps even chapter eight is, is, is a bridge to this reform of the Security Council. At the moment, these kinds of things are, are a pipe dream, but the idea is that uh, instead of having new members, new states to have international organizations that are members of the Security Council, 
six of them to have a total of, of 11. Um, but away from this pipe dream of, of me and my friend, can there be a greater role for the OSC, but also for the UN to use the Chapter 8 uh, mechanisms uh, within the broader UN system, not just looking at the uh, uh, region of, of Europe? I think in theory, definitely. And, and that's also what uh, I try to work uh, uh, towards. Um, but of course, this uh, uh, would uh, depend on a regional organization that is capable uh, of uh, taking decisions, uh, uh, capable of implementing decisions. Uh, this was uh, the case, for instance, you know, uh, again, coming back to the um, management of the crisis in around Ukraine uh, uh, from 2014 on. Uh, clearly there, uh, I think the UN was very happy that the OEC, you know, could take care of this crisis management, was capable of mounting the special monitoring mission to Ukraine. I think this was a smart division of labor, and uh, and uh, I think uh, was uh, you know made made a lot of made a lot of sense. Um, but you know, under current circumstances, I'm 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 not even sure. You know, if the OEC would have enough. Uh, um, political uh, support, trust uh, to, uh, again, assume uh, a ceasefire monitoring uh, role. Um, so I think it, it, it really also depends on a, on a functioning regional organization if we want to implement uh, Chapter 8 of the UN Charter. Um, but I think it, it, as a perspective, as a vision, it, it's very important. What, what, what I think what um, we managed to achieve uh, over the last few years was perhaps at first sight not particularly spectacular, but still very important. You know, for instance, we uh, uh, got the OEC to, uh, buy, uh, to to get access to UN contracts, uh, and and this uh, you know allows us to save millions and millions uh, of euros. Uh, in the OEC uh, budget, uh, it uh, we managed to get uh, the OEC access to uh, trainings uh, of the UN. Again, you know, uh, saving lots of uh, taxpayer uh, money and and making international organizations uh, more efficient. And I think here you would still have uh, quite some uh, potential to um, improve cooperation uh, between regional organizations and the UN uh, in areas that are politically not particularly spectacular, um, but would make a lot of sense in also making uh, multilateralism, multilateralism more performing. Multilateralists uh, like you and I know the value of, of multilateralism. Um, it has contributed greatly to, to peace and security, to development, economic uh, development, to human rights over the past uh, seven, seven and a half decades, uh, longer even uh, if one uh, looks a, a broader view. But it seems that multilateralism is really under, under pressure, uh, not just because of uh, more power, uh, uh structures that 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 are defined through 
you know, might is right kind of thinking, but also within the institutions of multilateralism. There's uh, from positive aspects such as multi-stakeholderism uh, and islands of cooperation to some ambiguous new terms uh, like minilateralism or something that in the WTO has been used a lot, plurilateralism. Um, will will multilateralism survive uh, this this uh, and, and evolve, uh, or do you think there's like too much rigidity in those structures in order for for it to really evolve properly in the coming decades? I think there, there are different aspects that I would uh, uh, like to consider. Clearly. Um, a political commitment to use a, a multilateral organization uh, to uh, also you know be ready to uh, engage in time consuming processes in processes where you know uh, major powers do not have full control uh, um, this uh, political commitment has been less and less uh, over the last uh, decade or so, right? And this uh, clearly led uh, to uh, a questioning uh, of multilateral institutions, uh, an undermining uh, of institutions, and, and often in parallel, this, you know, is also then um, uh, felt when it comes to resourcing uh, multilateral organizations. So uh, unilateral approaches, bilateral approaches, uh, minilateral approaches, whereby you know, uh, a relatively limited set of interests uh, uh, by a rather homogeneous, uh, like-minded group of countries uh, um, are pursued you know seem to be uh, more promising more efficient and uh, and perhaps this is uh, understandable in a short term perspective but in a longer term perspective uh, i think there are too many issues where you know you want to have uh, everybody uh, on board where you uh, don't want to have a, a quick um, consensus among like-minded, but where it is key to also, you know, bridge uh, the gaps between um, uh, non-like-minded communities, and and this is why, and I think this is basically true for all major uh, challenges uh, that our planet currently faces, from security to climate change. Uh, I think these big issues. They cannot be solved in smaller uh, like-minded groups. And, and for this, we need uh, uh, genuine multilateral approaches. And, and, and I think uh, uh, we do uh, again need uh, enlightened political uh, leaders that you know, engage and believe in such approaches. At the same time, I would also argue uh, many multilateral institutions, they have been created um, <clears throat> a long time ago, uh, some you know, immediately after World War II. And uh, many, uh, when it comes to uh, organization management, you know, they are still uh, very much uh, in, a, in a 20th century mindset. And, and of course, this needs to be changed. And uh, you know, for instance, I tried to uh, uh, bring uh, the OEC Secretariat from the 20th to the 21st century, 
uh, by, for instance, digitalizing uh, most of the management processes. And uh, I think that, uh, by the way, uh, I think I, I managed to do to quite an extent. Uh, uh, here, uh, there was less uh, margin uh, of uh, participating states to kind of uh, block this process. And I so reform modernization of multilateral organizations is important. Uh, and this is partly the job of the secretariat, of the leadership of a, a multilateral organization, but partly it's also up to uh, member states to provide the space for these reforms, to provide the political support for these reforms. So it cuts a bit both, both ways. I think you need political leaderships that are ready to believe uh, in, in truly multilateral approaches, um, but you also need um, multilateral organizations, you know, that uh, realize, uh, you know, that uh, <laughs> we are now in the 21st century. Thomas, you did a lot more than just digitize the OSC. Anyone who uh, follows and has followed what the organization does and over the past few years uh, knows your immense uh, contribution to it, uh, including through the Fit for Purpose agenda and including through your leadership. Thank you very much for coming on the Light podcast. I think you're all for an enlightened diplomacy uh, is really a fit time for uh, to end this discussion. It has really been a, a pleasure to have it. Thank you, Thomas. Thank you so much, uh, Liupcho. It, it, the pleasure was uh, uh, totally on my side. Thank you. Diplomacy Live Podcast. Live.